episode 13 of the Gambots Podcast. I'm your host, Eric, and this is my co-host. It's Christian. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the anime, The Devil is a Part-Timer, the book, Weird of the White Wolf. Christian has seen the movies, Can You Ever Forgive Me? and Outlaw King, and we will be giving you an update in video game news, and then we will finish out the show by playing our Amazon review game. But first, this week, I ended up watching the anime, The Devil is a Part-Timer. It's a series from 2013 that I just finally got around to watching uh, this past weekend on Funimation streaming. And I got to say, it, it wasn't too bad. It's uh, 13 episodes. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that you have not seen this, Christian. No, I have not. Okay. So the premise of uh, Devil is a Part-Timer is uh, there's two worlds. One's called Enta Isla and the other one's Earth. And in and, and, and Enta Isla... There's the demon race and their demon king is at war with the humans. And in like the first five minutes of the series, you see the demon king's armies getting uh, destroyed by a, a famous hero from that world and him fleeing to our world. And he ends up being in Japan and the hero follows him. And so once he gets to Japan, he doesn't really have too much magic power left. He can only get it through certain areas where if humans are scared or whatever, so the story then takes a weird turn where he and his uh, psychic general essentially become uh, part-time workers in Japan. So he is a part-time shift manager at McDonald's and his general is like a, a, ho- a home wife that has to balance a budget. And it kind of talks about like living on low income jobs and the struggles with like balancing budgets. So it's kind of a humorous <laughs> concept. Um and then the hero is also there, and she also has a uh, job is at a call center. And there's, I think the the best part of this show is actually when they're delving into the weirdness of you know a powerful magical being just doing something as mundane as working in a uh, fast food restaurant. And I think those are actually the best episodes. They do have some other stuff where uh, they're trying. They kind of throw the idea that oh it's a someone's bad they're bad um and they look at can people actually like change and that's a that's more anime tropey and i don't actually find those parts as interesting but the whole stuff with him being a manager i thought was amazing um he goes into uh brand warfare with a kfc that opens up next door and he (laughs) buys over and I, I thought that stuff was great. Um, only 13 episodes. The first half is definitely better than the second half. Uh, there's a couple action scenes which aren't too bad. Um, they're short-lived and relatively quick, so I think their impact is more exciting. There's not too many anime tropes in this. There's not a lot of fan service, which I, I am happy because I'm not a fan of that stuff. This was originally based on a light novel, which if you don't know, light novels are essentially... Sh- kind of like short stories or young adult novels, I guess would be the best description for them for like an American comparison. And there's like, I think 19 light novels and anime only covered, I think the first three of them. So I I guess it gets way more in depth about um, into Isla and that stuff in the light novels. But for the first three, I I think the anime is good at 13 episodes. I don't know if I really want to hear about the other world because like I said, I found the most interesting stuff, the, the mundane things. Uh, overall uh, not too bad if you are not into anime this is definitely not one that's going to get you into it i think you have to be a fan of anime to enjoy this 
Uh, it does have tropes. I don't think some of the humor is going to hit unless you have some background with it. Uh, but if you do like anime, I'd say give it a give it a try. It's only thirteen episodes, so it's pretty easy to work through. Yeah, that's not too bad. That's it. At the very very beginning, when you were describing, you know, the the hero and the bad guy and escaping to the other world, I, it sounded a little bit like Samurai Jack. And then <laughs> once he became a manager of a store, it really shifted on that one. Yeah, you know, shows like that I think work best when they're they do things out of the ordinary because there are so many mangas coming out right now that are losers in our world die or somehow they get transported to basically a game fantasy world where they're awesome. And I think they're really boring stories to read. Most of them aren't done too well. I thought this one was done a lot better by bringing someone who's powerful and making him weak here in our world. Next, this week, I finally finished book three in the Elric of Melnibone saga, uh, The Weird of the White Wolf. I have to say, I had I have a compilation of his, the first three books, and I think this was the least interesting of the three. So this book was broken into three parts in a prologue. The three parts really don't fit together. It's like three short stories combined. The prologue didn't even have Elric in it, and I don't know if the prologue has something to do with the short. There are two short stories I missed in between uh, the first three books or what, but I don't know. It, it was interesting. It was fine writing, but it, none, none of the parts really work together, and actually the first part of the book and the third part of the book are about two years apart. So, in the first part of the book, Elric ends up going back to uh, Melnabone because his cousin Yurkun who he had defeated in the first book and then let rule the kingdom in his uh, absence finally took over it for real and it you know a lot of the book one just doesn't make sense to me and again I don't know if I missed stuff I don't know if he had written previous Michael Moorcock had written previous books and was like I need to tie this all together because I said X Y and Z happened so in this one uh, in the previous books, uh, Elric had left Melnibone and he put his cousin on the throne because he had power, even though his cousin had tried to kill him already. And his cousin had put uh, Elric's love of his life under a spell that she could not wake up from. And in this book, Elric goes back. Uh, his love, Ciramel, actually does come back to life and he ends up killing her. It's just, But a lot of this book doesn't make sense to me because it was supposed to be an unbreakable spell, but it was broken randomly when Elric showed back up Yurkun randomly had everyone listening to him whereas before they thought Elric had to die before they would listen to him uh they go he Elric sides with a bunch of humans to attack the Melnibonians um but they don't take into account that the Melnibonians have dragons so once they get through everywhere and destroy the city then almost every ship he's with gets destroyed by the dragons and one of his best friends it seems like everything just got glossed over really quickly there. And then book one ends with him being super depressed because he killed the love of his life. And then you move into book two and it's about him sort of sulking, but then, or I guess part two of this book, him sulking and he goes in search of a book uh, guarded by what they call the, the gods of uh, the Lords of law or something like that. There's the Lords of chaos and the Lords of, law and order and he serves the the lords of chaos so he finds this 
well, it's about the adventure of him trying to find the book. The adventure itself was pretty fun, but then his reasoning was he needed to see if there was any gods above the Lords of Chaos and Order. Um, kind of anticlimactic ending. And then in book three, he essentially storms the castle of a Lord of Chaos on the bequest of a queen of a land. It was fine. Overall, I think this is my least favorite of the three books, and it kind of makes me... I don't know if I'm going to continue reading these. There's a lot of them, and maybe it's just because these ones are written after the fact. I don't know. I wasn't as big of a fan as this one. Yeah, it sounds not well thought out. Yeah, it's hard to say because maybe it's just I'm reading it. I'm reading it chronologically, and I should have been reading them in another order. I don't know. I just things seem rushed to me. I don't know. It's a lot of the a lot of his powers, he's supposed to be this really strong sorcerer in the earlier books, but then you know his power is he calls on the lords of certain entities. He summons them, like the Lord of Lizards or insects or air elementals or fire, and then they do something and they're safe. Or he uses his sword and people fear him. I I don't know. I I feel like after reading this book, I've gonna maybe I don't have the perfect taste of what the series is, but I think I've got enough where at at the most like maybe I give one more book a try to see or a short story. But my initial enthusiasm for this series has waned because I think they've gotten a little less interesting as time has gone on. Honestly, this sounds like a movie that would end up on how did this get made? Like, it sounds like a movie that you would just have a lot of fun kind of making fun of. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I guess I could see that as a movie. It's just like, it would make the different parts of the book would make no sense. And maybe like I'm reading these wrong. Maybe these were originally just three short stories pulled into a compilation. And that that's where my misunderstanding on this is, but I don't understand how they really fit together as a book in itself. Well, you're right. If this was originally like his plan, it's there's so much jumping around. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So this week you saw, can you ever forgive me? How was that? It wasn't bad. I wasn't really sure what to expect from it. I'd seen the, I think a single preview a few days before I watched it and I was, I just kind of figured, you know, I didn't really want to see anything else that came out this week. So this came out October 19th. It stars Melissa McCarthy and Richard Grant. So this is based on a true story about a biographer and author named Lee Israel who started forging documents, mostly famous authors' letters, and selling them to just kind of survive because nobody wanted to actually publish her real biographies. And the issue with her biographies was that she didn't have her own voice. She just kind of disappeared behind her characters. And so she used that to her advantage to kind of become these authors while she was forging. And apparently she got pretty good at it. I think the movie said that one of her letters ended up in an actual biography of uh, one of the people she was impersonating. And then they had to then retract it and remove it for the second printing. So Melissa McCarthy's playing this off, playing an author who forges letters from. I'm just going to pick an author at random, like uh, Edgar Allan Poe or something, and she's trying to claim that these are authentic documents that they wrote to someone. 
Yeah, so one of the ones that I know is mentioned is uh, Faulkner. She says she she has Faulkners to sell. But yeah, she sells them to like the high-end document collectible community, which is apparently, you know, a, a big thing for <laughs> book collectors and, and whatnot. But she was selling these forged letters for hundreds and hundreds of dollars. She was making decent money, finally. Did you like it? Yeah, it was slow in parts. I mean, it it by no means was an action-packed movie. Usually when I think of like forgeries and the the FBI getting involved, I think it's going to be like a heist, but it wasn't. It was mostly just about her, and you don't really even see the FBI part of it because, I mean, she does get caught eventually, but you don't really even see the FBI bit of it until probably the last 25 minutes or so. But it was interesting. It was about her life and her she was just kind of a very unpleasant woman and then she befriended this other guy and they kind of just became partners in crime doing this to survive yeah i'm usually not a big melissa mccarthy fan uh i'm i'm i have a feeling you're not either well i'm not sure what how, how did she do in it she was good i'm really not a melissa mccarthy fan i don't I'm, I mean, I've only ever really seen her in comedies, and I'm not a big fan of her comedies. In this, she did a really, really good job as a dramatic actress. I was really, really surprised. And who does Richard Grant play? He plays her kind of best friend and partner in crime, but he's been in so many other things. He was a bad guy in Doctor Who for a season. He played the great intelligence uh, during a Matt Smith season, I want to say season seven. And uh, he was actually just in The Nutcracker. He was one of the four kings of the ki- the, the magical kingdom. And I think he has, I want to say, maybe one line. Really? Yeah, he plays the king of the snowflake kingdom. And, oh, man, yeah, he barely speaks. I was staring at him in Nutcracker, and you, his face is mostly covered most of the movie. And so I kept thinking, you know, I know him from something. I know him from something. When I looked him up, it was him, but... Yeah, looking at looking at his filmography, I I don't recognize him from anything. Yeah, it's long, but I think it's mostly British stuff. Interestingly, he's in the Nutcracker in 3D from 2010 as well as the new Nutcracker. Huh, that's interesting. This movie was pretty well received. It got it has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes right now, and I think the audience score is sitting nearby. It's around like 89%, I believe. The Metacritic score is at 87, so People really liked it, and I'm definitely one of them. Like I said, don't go into it expecting to be like on the edge of your seat, but it was an interesting story. Uh, who, who directed this? It was directed by Mario Heller, who has not directed much of anything, to be honest. She, she directed another movie called Diary of a Teenage Girl, which I had never heard of, and she was, I guess, an actress in Pop Star, the Lonely Island movie which I love. Oh, man, Never Stop Stopping? Yeah, Never Stop Never Stopping. <laughs> yeah, underrated movie. That was surprisingly funny. And she was also in MacGruber, which is unfortunate. Um, but, yeah, she did a good job with this for her second try. I was impressed with it. I was also super excited because <laughs> randomly at the end, her lawyer is Mark Evan Jackson, who I have grown to love in the past couple of years. He's in uh, he's in the good place as Sean, the one of the leaders of hell. 
He's in uh, Parks and Recreation as a lawyer. He's in Brooklyn Nine-Nine as the captain's husband, Kevin. So he just, he always plays this kind of deadpan, humorless guy that just comes off hysterically funny. And so he, I mean, he wasn't funny in this, but he was definitely that character again as, as her lawyer, just kind of straight laced, no, no humor behind it. And he was, he did a good job. I was excited to see him. That's cool. I'm always excited when you see a cameo you aren't expecting. Like, they're not in the previews or anything. Like, the last one I think that really, really surprised me that I couldn't believe was uh, Tom Cruise in um, Tropic Thunder. Like, he was <laughs> awesome in that. Because I didn't even know it was him until the credits. Like, that was how surprising <laughs> it was to me. I was like, man, I could not believe they pulled that one off. Yeah, that is for sure one of the best. But yeah, he came on screen in this movie, and I think I, I actually was like, what? I was I was pretty pretty happy. Good. Overall thoughts? Would you suggest uh, our listeners to check this out? Yeah, if you like biopics, if you're into this kind of stuff, absolutely. If you're just looking for like a way to to be entertained and kill some time, eh, maybe see what something else instead. But if if you're into like history and this kind of stuff, yeah, sure, definitely check it out. It was well made. All right, and this week you also saw Outlaw King. What is that movie about? Yeah, I actually watched it last night. I was looking for something to put on Netflix because of the Hulu on my TV wasn't working, and it just came out, and so it was at the top of the page. And honestly, I thought it was a TV show until I hit play and saw it was like two hours long. Chris Pine plays Robert the Bruce, who is the King of Scots after the uh, first Scottish War of Independence. So this kind of picks up right after Braveheart would have ended. Like you mean historically, or this is you're not saying this is an actual sequel to the movie Braveheart, right? Yeah, no, no, not not a direct sequel. Just historically, the story picks up right where Braveheart would have ended. Edward the First is the King of England, and after the King of Scotland died with no successor, they asked England to arbitrate who was going to take the throne, and England instead said, "We're going to take the throne." And so that story is mostly in Braveheart. But then this takes place after William Wallace's death, and they crown Robert de Bruce the king of the Scots, and then he goes to war with England and <laughs> instead, after swearing fealty to the crown just to kind of make the war stop, they decide, no, we're going to keep it going anyway. And, I mean, historically, ultimately, they're successful for... They, they win their independence for quite a while. Uh, what'd you think of it? It was good. It was, yeah, it was surprising. Like I said, I hadn't really, I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't have any background or context for it. So it was, it was fun to just kind of dive in and be like, oh, what's this going to be? Chris Pine does a really, really good job. The accents were tough in places. I, I almost put the subtitles on here or there, but I got through it. It is, however, brutally violent. Like, it's definitely trying to capitalize on some of the, like, Game of Thrones fans out there because there is a lot of a lot of similar themes between Game of Thrones and this. Yeah, and it looks like there's actually two Game of Thrones actors in this. 
Yeah, there was a little reunion. Uh, Chris Pine's father in the show is played by James Cosmo as Robert the Elder, who was the Lord Commander Jor Mormont in Game of Thrones. And then the king, Edward I, is played by Stephen Delane, who was Stannis Baratheon. So that was that was a cool little little thing there. And they, they also talk about fighting under the dragon banner and fighting like wolves. And like I said, just the overall atmosphere of the show really made it feel Game of Thrones-esque. Uh, is this a Netflix original? Yeah, it is. I've been noticing they've been doing trying to do more like uh, historical pieces uh, lately with Netflix, and that's kind of cool to see. I'm glad that they're expanding. Yeah, it's been it's been neat. I've I've had Marco Polo on my <laughs> queue for I don't even know how long. I've heard it was good, but maybe I'll get to that now that I'm I'm kind of amped up on this. Yeah, I've heard Marco Polo is good too. Have not watched it. I feel like you have to be in the the right mindset to watch these sometimes. Like, I'm not always wanting to watch uh, ultra-violent historical action movie. (laughs) It is a specific mood, but like I said, now that this has got me into it, maybe I'll I'll give Marco Polo a try. Yeah. So it looks like this got a 57% on Rotten Tomatoes. What, what is that? Do you think that's a reasonable score or would you put it higher? I would probably put it higher, but it's not surprising, especially for how violent it is. There, yeah, there are definitely some people who are not going to be on board with it. Um, I, I keep coming back to the same analogy, but really, if you're comfortable with the amount of like sex and violence in Game of Thrones, you'll be fine with this. This is actually probably not even as bad as that. But if you are just kind of a casual Netflix like viewer and you put this on, you might not have been prepared for what you saw yeah um so would you recommend people check this out yeah absolutely why not it was it was fun it was action-packed it was violent it was it it served its purpose it told the story and i mean the story was violent so you kind of have to do it justice all right in video game news uh there's recently been leaked images for the Hollywood's Monster Hunter adaptation. So have you ever played or do you know about the Monster Hunter games, Christian? Not very much. So Monster Hunter is a huge franchise in Japan. Uh, Monster Hunter World came out, I think it was last January or February. I can't remember the exact month. Uh, And it was, I think it's Capcom's best-selling game uh, of all time. People really like it. So Monster Hunter, you are placed into a fantasy world where you get giant weapons and you hunt monsters. And you can do it alone, but it's really meant to be played uh, with groups of four or at least with a friend. And so you actually have to find things, track the monsters down, and then there's smaller ones, but the big ones you're really going for are these big monsters and they have their own attack patterns, and you can only damage, they'll take less damage if you attack certain things, but if you do other things, uh, armor parts will fall off, and people are really into this series. Um, And then once you kill the monster, you get their bones, or you get crafting materials, you craft stronger weapons, and then you go back and do it again. So there's a gameplay loop there that people really like. I've only played a Monster Hunter game on the 3DS, and I don't even remember which one. Um, 
I played it for maybe 20 hours was not really my cup of tea. I was playing alone. So maybe that was the reason I didn't like it as much. And I got it a couple of years after it come out. Cause I saw it on sale, but overall, like I can see why people like the series. It, it, it does have an addicting loop of getting stronger by killing monsters and you have to learn their attack patterns and stuff. And it's fun. So Hollywood's doing an adaptation of this and everything I said about that. Uh, you see, uh, you in military vehicles in any of that description? <laughs> no, can't say that to do. No. So, Monster Hunter movie is going to star Mila Jovovich, who is essentially, I think, the only female who plays video game heroine in movie <laughs> ad- in, in movie adaptations of video games. I mean, she's been in Resident Evil. She's been in a lot of stuff, and I don't actually know things that she's not in that aren't like video games or like nerd adjacent um so she's starring in this one and she's been sending out uh uh, pictures from the set and the initial pictures she has tweeted out are her in military fatigues with guys in military fatigues with uh you know hummers and machine guns and stuff which is nothing like the monster hunter game um so it's surprising now, you said that this game starts with you being transported there. Do you mean, like, the character is, like, a modern-day character who gets sent to another world, or do you just start in that monster world? I apologize. The movie is supposed to start with Mila Jovovich being transported to the Monster Hunter world. Okay. Um, in the In the one game that I've played, you just start there. You know, you're a, you're a hunter. They're called hunters who go around. I, this this game originally came out on the PS2, then it had a huge PSB uh, following, and then some 3DS, and now it's back on consoles again. Um, but no, from my understanding for all of them, you're just a hunter in this world. You're not uh, from our world getting transported in there. Um, and in this one, it's like, are they, my biggest question is, are they just taking guns into the Monster Hunter world? Because I feel like that kills a lot of what makes people like Monster Hunter. Yeah, that'd be fair. Yeah, I guess you can hold out hope that the like the pictures she's been putting up on Instagram are just from like the very beginning of the movie. <laughs> and, yeah, and right. maybe maybe it'll it'll pick up as time goes on. Although in my experience video game movies never typically hold up. No, and the issue is it's like who's this audience for? Your audience is the people who play Monster Hunter. And if you're like you changing it that drastically is, I think a a very bad call because what casual moviegoer is going to see that and think, you know, like you're not drawing it. Your audience is already built in. Why are you trying to get a new audience and then also alienating your built-in audience? Yeah, exactly. Video game movies typically, like I said, have a a reputation of not being great. So even your your standard population is going to see that it's based on a game and they're probably going to say, you know, nah, I'll go watch something else, something that I think is going to be better. And at this point, you've already lost your entire, like, built-in fan base. Like you said, it doesn't seem like a great choice. Yeah, I mean, video game movies that I can count that, like, I will not even say are good, but I think were fun movies. Uh, Resident Evil 2... Emil Jovovich movie, Silent one of the uh, Silent Hill, and then 
even though it's super campy, I think Mortal Kombat is one of the best video game movies because they lean into what people like. Like, it's outrageous. It's a stupid concept, but they take it seriously, and that's what people like. You know, like, they know it's dumb, but they're not going to try and make it cool. It's like, nope, it's campy. We have we have an ice ninja. We have this ninja from hell. Uh, we have a lightning god. Like, whatever. We're just going with it. And that's why it's fun, and that's why people like them so much. Whereas if you take and you try and reimagine it to something that's maybe more palatable for normal audiences, I think it just comes off as bland and you alienate your built-in audience. Yeah. I will say, I think my favorite video game movie is uh, Prince of Persia. Jake Gyllenhaal? Yep. It was dumb, but man, I've watched that movie I don't know how many times. I, I really enjoy it. I I saw it once in theaters, and I remember not hating it, and that's all I can say about it. I think for me, I really enjoyed the music, and that's why I kept coming back to it, and I ended up just learning to really like the, the movie as a whole. I also really like the new Tomb Raider with Alicia Vikander. See, I did not see that one. I heard some pretty good things about that. Another one that was bad, but I thought they would actually take some inspiration from Prince of Persia was the most recent, well, not the only, the only Assassin's Creed movie, uh, that they released because it was supposed to be like oh like 80% of this movie is in modern day and it's like no one very few I don't want to say no one a very small percentage of Assassin's Creed's uh, fans play the game for modern day stuff yeah it was bad yeah so you're, fight, you're fighting that stigma by changing Monster Hunter up so much maybe maybe you're right maybe this is just really early movie stuff but if it is, why are you putting that out there to, like, you're going to lose, people are going to see this and just completely tune out the rest, even if they show cool stuff later. Like, you're going to alienate part of your audience with these pictures. Yeah. I mean, maybe based on the movie itself, just the nature of it, I can see, like, a whole bunch of it being CG. Maybe this was just a good picture that they didn't take in front of a green screen. Yeah, that's true. In other gaming news, Microsoft has announced that they are purchasing Obsidian Entertainment and In Exile Entertainment, which are two huge studio pickups for them, I think. Um, so if you don't know, Obsidian is, in my opinion, prolific. They are basically the successors and in interests to Black Isle Studios, who are famous for working with Baldur's Gate, Planescape Torment, and Neverwinter Nights. And their recent lists of games include Fallout New Vegas, which is some players' favorite Fallout game. And most recently, they've done Pillars of Eternity 1 and 2, which was a callback to the old CRPGs that they are famous for that had a wildly successful Kickstarter. And then they also did South Park The Stick of Truth, which was a really successful um, RPG that spoofed uh, Game of Thrones. And, and Exile is not as well-known as them, they've, but they've done The Bard's Tale, they've done Wasteland 2, and they've done, the, more recently, Torment, Tides of Numera. Uh, both of these guys are very good RPG makers. I've played Pillars of Attorney. I think it's a really good game. So, huge pickup for Microsoft. Uh, have you ever played any of these studios' games, Christian? I don't believe so. The closest I would have gotten would have been Fallout, but I have not played any of the Fallout games. I just, that's the one I know the most about. Yeah, so uh, 
Baldur's Gate 2 is considered by, uh, I think a general consensus is it's one of the best RPGs ever made. You know, there's arguing about is it the best or not, but for CRPGs, it's held in very high regards. And in recent years, Microsoft's really been struggling with studios for the Xbox One. I was looking at sales uh, between PlayStation 4 and Xbox for this generation. Right now, PlayStation, I think, is sitting at like 85 million units sold and Xbox at like 40. And a big, big issue of this is PlayStation has had some amazing exclusives. They had Horizon Zero Dawn. They had Persona 5. They have God of War. They just had Spider-Man. And that's just in the past two years. Um, Xbox One has not had as many. They've had their first-person shooters and their Halos and whatnot, and they had had Sunset Overdrive, but otherwise, and they have Forza, but otherwise, I think they're getting hammered on more general appeal, um, first-party studio games, and they don't have any RPGs, which is a huge subset of PlayStation people really like RPGs. So I think this is an attempt by them to claw back some of the console audience in RPGs, but they're going at it for um, they're, they're getting computer RPG studios for that. And I think this actually ties into their policy of they're really starting to lean into combining computer gaming and Xbox gaming to the point where I'm curious if one day Xbox just becomes a second computer you attach to your TV and maybe loses some of its brand identity. But good for Microsoft for, I know I talk about PlayStation a lot, but I do think it's good to have actual competition and companies pushing each other. Um, So I'm happy that maybe they will start getting some exclusive games for their player base. Yeah, I feel like that's been a divide that's been happening for a while. Like I remember when I first got my 360, I had been basically, I had PlayStation 1 and PlayStation 2, and then I moved to a 360 just because that's what a lot of my friends had and I wanted to play Left 4 Dead. And I remember my friend told me even back then, you know, get comfortable with first-person shooters because that's all Xbox makes. And that seemed to be kind of the way it was for a while. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, it would be disingenuous to say that's all it is because Final Fantasies have come to Xbox. But in my mind, if you want to play, like, JRPGs or just role-playing games in general... I would say lean more towards the PlayStation. I mean, the PS Vita has tons of JRPGs and Microsoft doesn't. And I think it comes down to console sales. So if you look at console sales between the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One in the US, it's actually pretty similar. I think PlayStation might have sold like 27 million and Xbox like 24 million, somewhere in there. It's it's actually close. But then when you look at their Japanese sales, it's like PlayStation 4 has sold... 20 million units and Xbox has sold like 3 million. Like there's a huge disparity. Wow. And, yeah. And a lot of RPG makers, you know, cause, cause the JRPG is so popular are Japan developers. So you pretty much have them looking at that and just cutting out an entire subsect by being like, we're just going to focus on one platform. Um, and so I think this is Microsoft's pushes to get more RPGs on their console is let's make some ex- good exclusive like western rpgs um like like they had mass effect originally as an exclusive or at least a, it wasn't on playstation 3 initially um and even though it's a third person shooter it is heavily rpg influenced yeah and we've also seen a move in more recent years of a lot of more games have been doing cross-platforming where like you said the final fantasies have been coming out kind of across consoles Yeah.
And finally, in gaming news, Black Friday's coming up uh, next Friday, actually. So have you had a chance to look at any deals you think are pretty good? Well, I did see the PS4 at Sam's Club. You can get a one terabyte for $200. That one is looking pretty good for me. I was trying to hold out and maybe get the uh, collector's edition Kingdom Hearts PS4, but I think if, if I can get a console at that price, I'm, I'm probably not going to pass it up. You know, a one terabyte PS4, even without Spider-Man at 199 I think is a pretty good price. You put in Spider-Man, which granted, I've only played uh, about an hour of, but it has really high reviews. I, I think that's a really good bundle. Yeah, there are some deals out there for a three ninety nine PlayStation Four Pro, which if you're looking for a PS Four Pro, is not a bad deal. But I don't have a four K TV, and I I have like a launch PS Four, and it runs all the games fine with only five hundred gigabytes. So I think the one terabyte hard drive is awesome, especially because I think if you end up getting one, you end up downloading more games than you realize, just because there's so much more indie games out there right now. Yeah, you're probably right. And I, I mean, I have a lot of feelings about 4K, mostly that I think it's dumb and you're never going to trick me into buying a 4K anything. Oh, really? <laughs> I think at a certain point, resolution is as good as it's going to get and you can make the TVs as big as you want. I don't think the picture is going to get any better. Yeah, I'm, well, I don't know. I'm, pro- I w- I'm going to get a new TV. My TV is like eight years old now. I'm going to try and hold off on two more years so I can say I had it for a decade before I switch. <laughs> <laughs> but I have like a plasma, and I'm really excited to get a giant 4K TV when they go when they go down in price a little bit more in a couple of years. Yeah, I mean maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like I've stood in WalMarts and looked at a regular TV and a 4K TV side by side, and I can't tell the difference. Yeah, the big thing actually with the PlayStation 4 Pro and the Xbox One X is um, you can get everything to run at 60 frames per second, which I'm not a huge like guy about that, but it does look a lot smoother when it does. And then also you can change it for, if you don't actually have a 4k TV, you can do performance mode. So the refresh rates are better and um, it just overall the game plays smoother. So that's, that's one benefit. I'm probably not going to buy one. I feel like I'm just going to hold out for a PS five uh, at this point. Cause I, I know it's down the line, but if you don't have one and you really want to try out it, uh, PS4 Pro is out there. And also, if you're an Xbox guy, the Xbox One S uh, Minecraft uh, Creators Edition is $199 at Target and the Microsoft Store, maybe a couple other places. That seems to be the bundle they're pushing. You know, I'm, I'm not a huge Xbox guy, but people really like, do like Xbox. So if you haven't had a chance to pick one up and you've been wanting one, that doesn't seem like a good deal. And similarly to the PS4 Pro, you can actually get the Xbox One X for $399 out there, um, I think, with some bundles. And if you're actually going to get like a the iteration of either the PS4 Pro or the Xbox One X, from everything I've heard, is the Xbox One X uh, is the better one at performing. They do true 4K. P- the PS4 Pro does like full 4K. Um, so just just something to think about if you're upgrading to one of those consoles. Uh, hmm. The coolest thing that I saw, which it sucks, it's seventy nine dollars. I think it's a little bit overpriced because it's this is a bundle from like two or three years ago but they have a Super Mario Maker Edition 2DS. I am a huge fan of the 2DS line of um, Nintendo consoles. Uh, the 2DS is what got me actually into the 3DS line of games because it was I bought one for 80 bucks, and I love their library. Uh, the Mario Maker Edition of it looks really cool. I think Nintendo has done a really good job, or they did a really good job, I guess, 
with 3DS uh, special consoles. Like they had a Hyrule edition. They look slick. Um, and I think the Mario Maker one looks great. You are interested in 3DS gaming and you want a cheaper entry point. I highly suggest checking out that bundle. Super Mario Maker on the Wii U was awesome. Had included it on the 3DS. Uh, but I assume it's relatively similar. So you should check that out. And then finally, there is the Mario plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle for $25 at Target. If you have a Switch and you like XCOM games or things like that, Mario uh, plus Rabbids, surprisingly an awesome game. I hate the Rabbids from Rayman of the Wii, but <laughs> man, it's a good, it's a Nintendo game. They pair with Ubisoft and they pulled Magic, man. It is a really fun strategy uh, game. All right, and now we are going to play our Amazon review game. For the rules of this game, I'm going to read Christian a five-star review from Amazon. He'll get two questions, and then I can read another review. He'll get two more questions, and then one final review. Then he has to guess what the movie is. Are you ready, Christian? Bring it on. All right. How can you not like this character? The way he talks back to people, the one-liners, jokes, and awesome powers are everything people should envy. Or at least I am. The movie has a history I like and admire. Sorry. The movie has a story I like and admire in a way, especially how he gets the girl in the end, even with his new looks. I personally love everything about this character, from the Funkos to the video games to the movies. It is one of those movies where you can watch, you can rewatch a lot of times and never become bored. Does this movie star Ryan Reynolds? It does. All right, Deadpool. Yes. Nice. This is a quick one. I wanted to, so uh, listeners out there, we found out Stan Lee had died today, so I wanted to pick a movie Stan Lee had a cameo in. Good call. Man, you got that really quick. <laughs> it was uh, honestly, it was the uh, he gets the girl even with the new looks and the uh, the oh, Funko man. name drop. That was the the one I was like, ooh, I bet this is Deadpool. Yeah. All right. Well, nice. We crushed that one. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to our show. Before we go, Christian, what are you checking out this week? Well, I know I said this last week, but a new Sanderson book came out called Skyward. I literally just downloaded it on my Kindle minutes before starting this recording because I was bopping around doing other stuff this week. So I'm definitely going to try to get into that. Also, the new Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them comes out this week. And so I'm probably going to be watching that hopefully Wednesday night, if not maybe Thursday afternoon. Uh, so this week, I kind of like got a little bit burnt out on video games. I didn't play them as much this weekend. So I'll probably be trying to get back into that. Uh, I'm currently watching, I, I've gotten more into anime, and I'm watching another anime right now called The Disastrous Life of Sakiki K. Uh, so I might be talking about that next week. It's been pretty good so far. And like you, I do want to see the new Fantastic Beast movies. I really underestimated the first one. I, I went into it thinking it was going to be horrible and ended up really surprised. And now I'm worried that I have too high of hopes and this one is going to disappoint me. Yeah, it was great. It really, it really blew me away. I'm very excited about this one. Not super thrilled about Johnny Depp, but We'll take what we can get, I guess. Yeah. Do you remember who, like, played... I know, like, Johnny Depp made his cameo with him, but I don't remember. Who played the bad guy for most of that movie? Colin Farrell. 
Yeah, I I thought he was awesome, and I wish that they had used him instead of Johnny Depp. Speaking of cameos, didn't know Johnny Depp was coming. He came on, mumbled a line that I could not understand what he said and had to Google it <laughs> after the fact. And was like, God, he's going to be in the next ones. Sure is. Now there's, there's supposed to be five, so I guess we'll see where it goes from here. But I am really excited about this one coming up. I can't believe they're making five of these. I also don't like that they're like doing sort of revisionist history with Harry Potter where J.K. Rowling comes back and she's like, nope, Nagini was a person the whole time. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I I don't love that. Me either. I guess we'll see how they work it into the movie. Maybe I'll take it back. But yeah, that was I was not thrilled with that decision. Yeah, like if you're going to do a whole thing, like just do it as like a separate standalone. Don't have it really tie into the main series. Like I get it, Grindelwald's and on it, like he was really unexplored. I think that's fine. But then when you start like having cross-references with actual people like Dumbledore is now going to be in it and stuff. I think you muddy the waters a little bit. Well, the Dumbledore connection for me makes sense because that was part of the main story. Like, they, the two of them had been friends as as kids, so that was fine. But I think what they're running into now is, uh, like, Star Wars prequel territory where you're trying to shove as many like original characters into the prequels as you can and plot holes be damned. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I think Dumbledore makes sense. It's just like, I, I don't know. I like, I think I like the first one so much because they were all new characters. Um, yeah. Also not coming out this week, but I am looking forward to Creed two. The first Creed was a huge surprise for me and I ended up loving it. And I, I do like, I like, I wouldn't say a majority of the Rocky movies, but I do really like like three or four of them. Um, so I'm excited that uh, Michael B. Jordan has come back and he was awesome in the first Creed. I am looking forward to that release. Yeah, I've only seen one of the Rockies. I saw Rocky Balboa and I never saw the first Creed, but like you said, I've heard nothing but good things about it. I would say even if you don't like Rocky, you would you could still get into Creed. Like the first Rocky I like. I think the second Rocky is probably my favorite. I don't like three. I think I'm in the minority on liking four. And then I get kind of confused on their names. I like the one when he comes back as there's an old guy and has to fight like a, like a sort of retired guy who was like out of shape. I did like that one. That's Rocky uh, Balboa. That's the one I've seen. <laughs> yeah, I like that one just for the training montages alone where they're like, Rocky, you're old, so you're just going to get really hard fists and just get punched. <laughs> that's, that's your that's your ability. Um, but no, Sylvester Stallone was actually really good in Creed, and uh, so was Michael B. Jordan. Um, so you should check it out if you ever get a chance and you like boxing movies uh, at all. Like, I, I think it was good. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for checking out our episode. If you want to follow us, we're at Gambots Network on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thank you.